0: Hello and welcome to the April edition of MIBI's Eye. I'm Fiona McGregor and along with my co-host Marlene Halliday, we'll be dropping into a Pensioners for Indy meeting with Alf Baird, Professor of Maritime Business and he's a PhD in Global Shipping. This month we're looking at the question of Scotland's ports, just who does own them? and why do we have no direct links from Scotland to the rest of Europe? It's a fascinating discussion and a real eye-opener. We're very grateful to Pensioners Frindi for sharing it with us.
1: I was present in the discussion. It was a meeting organised by Glasgow pensioners for India, although there were pensioners from all over Scotland uh, joined in a Zoom meeting. We asked Alf to, to come along and talk particularly about ports and developments, what state they're in at the moment, and then um, you know how that might be affected by Scotland becoming independent. It was a very lively meeting. He's a very engaging speaker and he he, he chuckles a lot. And, and at the same time, quite a lot of what he was saying about the way that port authorities are organised. This is uh, basically came this way in the Thatcherite years. Unfortunately, a lot of what he was saying was quite depressing. During the meeting, someone said, I'm just feeling depressed. now. How could we have done something so stupid with our ports? Yeah eye-opening stuff, but I hope people really kind of, um, you know, take it in and think about it, because we will have to do something about that as a priority once we're independent.
2: Hello, everybody. Ports has uh, begun to get uh, quite a lot of political interest recently, but uh, historically ports were, and shipping uh, was regarded politically as uh, what my former colleague, David Begg, used to call the Cinderella mode. <laughs> so, ports and shipping did a lot of the work, but it got no recognition for it. First of all, talk about the technology in ports. And I was quite lucky starting in shipping in Leith in uh, the 70s as a, as a young shipping clerk. My first job was to take the documentation around all the ships before they left with uh, the, uh, the cargo for whatever destinations they were going and uh, that gave me an idea about uh, about shipping and what was happening and we were going through rapid changes then in uh, terms of containerization uh, the shift towards uh, boxes rather than uh, palletized goods going on cargo ships uh, which took forever to load ships Uh, so the movement towards container shipping uh, which was subsequently the subject of my phd in the 1990s linked to that is the massive upsizing in ships. So we had technological change, but also a rapid increase in ship size. And, and we, we all know that with cruise ships, but also container ships, ferries, and so on. Linked to that was this push towards uh, developing new ports downstream into deeper water, closer to the open sea, avoiding shallow navigation channels upriver to the old cities that, uh, that were once served by, by the steamers going up and down. So this was a a massive transformation, but also we had some uh, developments in urban centres for for ferries, for example, urban ferries were developing, as we see in many rivers around the world, except in Scotland, I have to add, uh, uh, for urban commuter ferries. Some of you may well know the the Thames Clippers operation on the Thames, which has fast catamarans running up and down the, the river able to link new developments on the river, housing developments, commercial developments. And this was quite common in many places, Australia, Canada, America, and throughout Europe. Uh, and subsequently, I did two studies in, well, two in the Clyde and one on the fourth, uh, proposing development of urban ferry services, which I couldn't get any government takers on that. <laughs> uh, but uh, Clyde River Bus uh, was, was an option that uh, Thames Clippers on. Uh, the, the company that runs the Thames Clipper services on the Thames from Greenwich up to the House of Commons, with about a dozen ships, they were interested in running the, uh, in tendering for that if the council ever got round to doing that. But uh, the council in, in Glasgow at the time decided uh, more bridges was the priority, not using the river uh, as an urban as a transport artery. But that's uh, beside the point. So we have that technological background. uh, And of course, well, when I was in shipping in the 70s and 80s in in Leith, we were proposing then a new port for the Firth of Forth. And that was never uh, taken seriously by the Port Authority or by government. But we couldn't handle even then the biggest cruise ships. And they still can't handle the biggest cruise ships even today at Leith. Uh, So there's a serious problem here with uh, provision of port facilities. Just to, to then go on to the legal aspects, we had in the uh, 1990s, well, with the Thatcher era, of course, a completely different ideology coming in uh, using uh, Friedman economics, which were misinterpreted largely. But the legal aspect it was, was, first of all, changed with the Ports Act in 1991, which allowed the ports to privatize. Uh, before that, we had trust ports. Trustports also are a bit of an alien concept as far as Scotland's concerned. <laughs> and and the literature historically going back into trust port uh, mechanisms and models is that uh, trust ports were also a mechanism for acting in the interests of trustees, if you like. So the interception of economic rents was always there for ports and, and certain port interests that were able to exploit their monopolies. So trust ports were not the ideal model. They were established by Acts of Parliament for Fourth, Clyde, Tay, and for many others in Scotland that still exist, Aberdeen, uh, Lerwick, and so on, uh, Invergordon. So we have a mixed ma- a mixed uh, uh, legacy of port uh, legal aspects. But the Ports Act in 1991 essentially allowed trust ports to bring forward privatization schemes. And very quickly, Fourth, Clyde, and Tay were privatized. Uh, and fourth uh, subsequently floated on the London stock market. Clyde port uh, bought by a management buyout team who quickly became multimillionaires and, and then sold on the port to the next owner. And then subsequently, the port was uh, bought, acquired by Peel Ports of Liverpool, or, or rather Channel Islands, <laughs> uh, ownership. Uh, so it's an offshore equity fund. So essentially, these ports became owned by offshore private equity funds. Uh, The problem is that the ports are split into three functions uh, in terms of the legality of them. Uh, The first is they are landowners. The second aspect is they are operators of all the activities within the port. And the third aspect is they are regulators, regulators of the navigation, regulators of new port developments. And they have the ability to tax shipping and trade. So every ton of trade and every ton of ship coming into the fourth Clyde or Tay can be taxed. Uh, and they are taxed by, at the moment, offshore private equity funds that own them. <laughs> so it means that all the money earned through this taxation on shipping and trade is leaked out of the economy. And uh, just to give you some idea of the kind of losses involved in that, where, where you do have municipal-owned ports in Scotland uh, are at uh, Shetland and Orkney. Uh, Sullen is the big oil terminal in Shetland, owned by BP, but it's regulated by the Council. Uh, as a port authority, Shetland Islands Council. And in Orkney, the Selmvoo Oil Terminal is administered, uh, regulated by the Port Authority, which is a department also of the council in Orkney. And these are the two councils that have been able to build up massive oil, uh, oil fund reserves, if you like. And it's basically from the ability to tax tankers. So All the tankers that have come into Shetland and Orkney over the last 30, 40 years have uh, been levied a tax on them. And the councils have gathered that up and stuck them in the bank account and build up their uh, multi-million pound uh, reserve funds, uh, which they still use today for various social goods. Alternatively, on the 4th and Clyde, the oil tankers and other ships, all the taxes levied on these ships has simply been extracted out of Scotland. And therefore, the local communities have not gained access to that at all, one single bit. And in the case of Hound Point on the fourth, that is, is probably into the billions of pounds extracted over the last 30 years by fourth ports. All I would say on the legal aspects of ports is these three areas, landowner, operator, and regulator, globally, the normal model for the private sector is to be the operator. And this involves the government still retaining land, the port land as owner, and regulator. So government can regulate and own the port land, but lease it out to private operators. That means government on the continent, for example, and globally this model is the norm, uh, they retain control over port planning, port development, port investment, and they control and regulate the operation of the, or the, the activities of the private operators. They can even impose price restrictions and, and also guarantees on freight volumes and tonnages going through ports so that the private operator has to deliver uh, on, its, on its commitment to running a port concession. Now, we don't operate that model, but that's the model which is the most common globally. Uh, and a country doesn't really need to sell off its port land. Uh, and to, uh, to in, in totally in, in totality, uh, and also give away its regulatory powers to offshore private equity funds to get an efficient system. In fact, you the end of the, the end result is you don't get an efficient system, you get an abusive monopoly power that simply exploits that monopoly no end. On the, the, the political aspects, uh, it really brings it down to uh, political ideology. Uh, which we, we see in the UK, this extreme model of port privatization, which sold off the port land, the port regulatory powers, as well as the, the utility function, the port operations. And in, in the global model is, is totally different to that. Uh, and this is defined by, has been defined by port academics uh, on the continent in places like Antwerp, Hamburg and Rotterdam as the Anglo-Saxon model of port privatization. (laughs) So the the continentals view this, uh, the British approach to port policy port privatization as a unique Anglo-Saxon model, uh, which, which outsources the regulation, the ownership, and the operation of ports to offshore private equity funds as we see today. Whereas the continental approach is what they call the Latin model, and that's where the mayor usually owns and runs the port or the city council runs and owns the port. And they then concession out the terminals to the private operators, the Maersk, DP World, whoever, on 30-year leases. So it means the council, the city, the state, whether it's Rotterdam, uh, Hamburg, wherever, they they control the port. Uh, uh, They control the planning of it and the development of it, the regulation of it, and the operations as far as the private sector are concerned, Are regulated by the government. Uh, So it means the private sector has to, they can rent terminals, but that's really about it, and they can put in place the cranes and the superstructure. And this is the continental model really is a split of infrastructure and superstructure in the ports. So the continental or global model is really the government's put in place the port infrastructure and the, uh, the private sector put in place the superstructure, which is the cranes, the sheds, The systems to run the port and manage the ships, and they do all that. But the Port Authority has an ongoing function to control safety, navigation, uh, and economic efficiency, if you like, so that uh, private actors don't intercept too much of the economic rents. Bear in mind that uh, ports can make or break an entire country's economy. And where we give away our ports to the private equity funds offshore, they can completely destroy our economy uh, through that mechanism. And that's also why uh, most countries, in fact, all other countries outside the UK, even the United States, uh, don't adopt this model. This model, uh, the ports are regarded as utilities, but they're also regarded as strategic for, uh, for the economic uh, uh, sustenance of the entire country. Uh, for the import and export of everything, uh, but also for defense and other purposes. So I'm not sure whether that's the technological, legal, and political aspect. And just to quickly go to the economic aspect, uh, I, I hope I've still got you with me. <laughs> but the, uh, the public, uh, there is the aspect that ports, uh, major ports particularly, are public goods. Uh, and this is well understood in economics uh, uh, for port economics globally. Uh, ports are uh, utilities, essential utilities for a people to survive. The difficulty with port investment being done by the private sector is that port investment tends to be very, very lumpy. It's very, very big, uh, lumpy investment to create a new seaport. Uh, it's very long term, a port investment will last centuries. Uh, so these are things that the private sector don't generally, are not generally able to undertake. long-term lumpy investments like this. Private sector, especially offshore private equity funds, are looking for returns after six or eight years, not after 50 years or 100 years. So this is why we don't see any new ports in Scotland, or or large-scale ports serving international markets, is because we've relied on the private sector to do it. And globally the private sector don't do that. It's the public sector, the state, that has to finance uh, and proceed with planning for large-scale, long-term port investments, basically because they're very lumpy, very long-term, uh, private equity funds don't do that. All private equity funds do is come along and buy a public asset like Fourth Ports and Clydeport, sweat it for a few years, milk it for all they're worth, and then uh, run away and sell it to another private equity fund to do the same again. <laughs> so the, the private equity model is not sustainable for any economy because uh, you never get new ports. You, you never see really new infrastructure, unless the public sector come in and co-finance it, like the Greenock uh, Cruise Terminal <laughs> or Ardrossen, all of which are owned by Peel Ports. But, uh, but Peel Ports have their handout uh, for the state to invest in new ferry terminals at Ardrossen, for Calmac, and also for cruise terminal at Greenock, and any other facility on the river uh, that they might want to develop. They're looking for public money, and the same as uh, fourth ports on the 4th, looking for the free port or Greenport money, 50 million pounds up for grabs, uh, which will help them to develop a couple of terminals in Leith, perhaps. So essentially, the economic aspects of ports globally are well understood outside Scotland and the UK, as being essential. Uh, the role of the public sector is absolutely vital in providing seaports because of their lumpiness and the long-term nature, and also very high, high cost. The final aspect here is, I uh, just want to talk about the social aspects, because if we link back to the technological aspects, we're all aware that our old docklands became obsolete, whether it's the Clyde, the Forth, uh, the Tay, and so on. These, these Uh, old uh, docks became obsolete because the shipping technology had fundamentally changed. Bigger ships going downriver required new facilities, and that presented a great opportunity for social uh, and urban revitalization of the waterfront, which has passed us by to some extent. Uh, What was done in other countries is that because these port lands were maintained and, and owned by the municipalities involved, the cities and the states, the city and the state, council, state councils and state bodies were able then to, to, to redevelop the ports in an urban context. Socially affordable housing, commercial developments, and other aspects could be done relatively quickly. So we, we rapidly saw a redevelopment model. that's very common across the world, whether it was Vancouver, Yokohama, uh, Genoa, Barcelona, Gothenburg, Rotterdam, Amsterdam, all these great city ports uh, and others, uh, more modest city ports around the world, were able to redevelop their obsolete docklands for urban use. And this was a, quite a dynamic uh, trend and development. The problem we've had in the fourth, the Clyde, and, and to some extent the Tay as well, is that these developments were length, subject to lengthy delays in urban redevelopment. And also, they prioritized uh, high-value uh, high Uh, apartments and other other aspects that uh, linked into the need for the private equity owners to extract as much wealth out of the waterfront land as they possibly could. So that was their priority was profit rather than urban revitalization in in a socially responsible manner. The result is we have now a tremendous amount of dock land still left available uh, at Leith, for example, and so on, and uh, various Fife ports that has also been redeveloped in, 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 in prob- an indiscreet and, and, and un, 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 well, insensible fashion that uh, doesn't al- always bring uh, uh, joy to the local communities. Uh, so and we're still left with quite a lot of obsolete Dockland in that respect. The end result, of course, that this is, as well as the piecemeal uh, redevelopment of Docklands, whether it's Clyde, Forth, Tay, and so on, we've also had the lack of uh, emphasis on creating new port infrastructure for Scotland uh, and this is a bit of a bugbear for me because this is areas that I've actually done quite a lot of research in showing where we should have new ports uh, for example in uh, Kikenzie at the former power station and also the development of the Scapa Flow project Hunterston's another one that's not been developed properly as it sh- as it could have been uh, due to Clydeport ownership changing to Peel uh, so uh, Scotland as a in a sense is is in this uh, an under, underdeveloped situation. Uh, I, I, link it, I liken it to uh, a, a colonial kind of reality where the, the system is not developed, uh, the port system in Scotland is not developed to enhance Scotland, uh, Scotland's competitiveness globally. The port system in Scotland and, and the economy largely is just largely there to develop uh, and to, to support the core nation, as it were, the needs of the core nation which is, is, is the UK, or rather England. And most of the port developments we see are in the, in the south of England. Uh, and we don't see the same impetus or incentive to develop anything north of the border, which means our ports are in, in a dire state now, uh, no longer relevant to, to much of modern shipping, and, and therefore no longer attractive to modern shipping, and also very expensive, because the private equity funds tend to have very high tariffs that chase business away. Uh, so it's actually chasing sh- trade and shipping away. Uh, therefore, I think the, the conclusion to all this is that we we actually need, in Scotland, uh, a modern uh, maritime policy. Uh, and this has been drafted by myself and, and Roy Peterson before, uh, uh, and it was given to the SNP Westminster group. In fact, they commissioned it. But as soon as they showed it to civil servants, <laughs> they jumped up and down and said, oh, you can't do that. So, The the problem is, of course, that the the Scottish government, the Holyrood, is still working to a London agenda on transport policy internationally. And that transport policy internationally, uh, in in a sense, is to leave the ports as they are, uh, to leave the Thatcher legacy as it is, to leave the exploitation to continue uh, for the foreseeable future. And these esterial monopolies are comprehensive and very complete and they are inhibiting scotland's trade and constraining scotland's economic uh, development so um, the the only thing one can conclude here is that probably independence is, <laughs> is the only thing that can change this philosophy uh, assuming of course you get different policy makers coming into the civil service and so on that understands a bit about policy and shipping i have to say just to finish that uh, that uh, the, the, most of the projects I worked on in European projects with port operators and port, port policymakers, uh, it was quite obvious that the civil servants on the continent were quite often had education in port policy, port economics. Often they had PhDs, doctorates, in port development policies and, and shipping policy and so on, whereas our civil servants here in, in Scotland, none of them seem to have that expertise. They don't have an understanding of the importance of seaports. Uh, and how they can make or break an economy, uh, and that's very important. So ports are really, in, on the continent, they're regarded as engines of the economy, they, where you facilitate trade. Uh, but there is an understanding as well where you lose control of ports and give it to, uh, to the, the offshore private equity groups, then that can really constrain an economy's uh, growth and development, and that's largely where we are at the moment.
3: When we are independent, how do we change that? Do we have to buy out these uh, companies or do we just go and nationalise them? Because something radical is needed done.
2: First of all, a lot of the port facilities uh, are obsolete as far as ports are concerned uh, and therefore should be redeveloped uh, in, in, in perhaps a non-maritime function. Leith, for example, has a, a couple of hundred hectares of available dock land. That could quite easily be filled in and then filled uh, and then developed for socially affordable housing. Instead of that, we're we're now building uh, tens of thousands of properties, houses on the Greenbelt outside Edinburgh, uh, okay. and all of it, a lot of it, on Duke of Kalu's land. So he's earning a fortune out of this as well. <laughs> so, but Leith, so Leith should have been uh, redeveloped. The, there is also an environmental issue in Leith as well, which is the the water of Leith doesn't actually flow to the sea; it's blocked in by the, the lock entrance and cofferdam that was installed in the 1960s. So it's actually an, an environmental nonsense as well. But the private equity fund uh, that own it want to extend its life and use it for, for these green uh, energy developments offshore, which, in my view, is, not, is the wrong, wrong decision. Uh, the other thing is, is ports, uh, public bodies do have recourse to compulsory purchase orders. And one of these uh, might, have, might have been employed for in-screen dry dock uh, uh, to use it for uh, shipbuilding or ship repair. There was uh, proposals by Dale's Marine to use it for ship repair. But my understanding is that uh, Peel Ports, the owner, uh, are, have not permitted that because they're also a shareholder in, in the Birkenhead docks of Camel Laird. So the, the Camel Laird uh, repair and, and ship repair and shipbuilding facility is owned by the owner of Clydeport as it were, Peel Ports, and they don't want to see the same competing facilities arising on the on the Clyde. So the Inch Green Dry Dock is the biggest dry dock in Scotland, one of the biggest in, in Europe, and, and could easily be used for, for ship repair or even shipbuilding. And I know that Jim McCall wanted to use it for shipbuilding before the the ferguson's issue which is another issue we might talk about, but the idea what Peel ports the owner of uh, the Clyde ports is is, is is proposing to do uh, with uh, inch in green is to use it for ship recycling now as you know ship scrapping is is not is not an aspect of the business we we, we should probably be going down it's it tends to be uh, only go to an area where there's very low labor costs and high unemployment, and also spare shipyard capacity. So it's probably the last thing we should be doing is ship recycling uh, at, uh, at Inch Green. Uh, so yeah, some of the ports are, are, obs- are, the port capacity is obsolete, so shouldn't be, it doesn't need to be acquired anyway. Uh, but the compulsory purchase order should be applied for certain port facilities that are left derelict and disused for, for too long. Uh, and that includes areas of Leith, perhaps, <laughs> and, and, and perhaps the Clyde as well. Uh, uh, the other aspect is the Port Authority fun- function, uh, where you're managing hundreds of square miles of estuary. Uh, so the Clyde estuary management, if you like, or Port Authority jurisdiction runs from from uh, the Nautical College further inland, I think, way down to Athens. So you have a private offshore equity company Controlling, he's the river policeman essentially. Uh, that, that, that's an offshore private equity group police the river uh, and they run, they control pilotage, they control everything on it. It's the same on the fourth from Stirling all the way down to almost uh, Eyemouth. <laughs> you have hundreds of square miles of navigable waterway and many port facilities on the way controlled by private equity groups. Uh, and these are completely uh, alien. Uh, management concepts outside the UK. No sensible government anywhere would allow that kind of control of, its, of their strategic estuaries, but Scotland has been left with that legacy. So my proposal would have been to, to reinstate public port authorities, not necessarily as port owning the ports initially, but regulating the rivers and taking that regula- these regulatory powers off the private equity groups.
1: First question I put up, Alf, was um, just wondering about, uh, is the policy for Scottish ports, is all that devolved to Holyrood or is it still
2: reserved to to London? Keith Brown, when he was Transport Minister, asked the very same question to me (laughs) and and he didn't know whether ports were devolved. (laughs) We asked the Department for Transport in London and they came back with the answer. Yes, ports are devolved. It came as a shock to the SNP, believe it or not, to understand that they actually are responsible for ports in Scotland, uh, but they don't have a policy for them. And that's the problem. The other problem they have is the port system, uh, the privatized system, the legality of that is enshrined in Westminster Act. The Ports Act enabled these ports to be privatized, so and that gave them all these powers and responsibilities of public authorities. So port authorities are called authorities for good reason. They have powers to fine people. They have powers to police estuaries and rivers. They have, poly, they have powers to prevent navigation. They have powers to levy taxes. They have all these public authority powers, and we've just willy-nilly Uh, in the Thatcherite policy of the 90s, given it to the private banks to exploit us completely. Uh, And it is crazy and insane. Uh, And I'm not sure whether Keith Keith Brown rather got that, but my proposal to him was he really needed to do something about it. But I think his civil servants basically said, yeah, devolved uh, parliament in Scotland doesn't have the power, doesn't have the power to to take these authority functions off the private equity groups. That's been given by Westminster. So, although Westminster can say Scotland has responsibility for ports, it doesn't have jurisdiction over ports, (laughs) and that's a different thing. So it's a bit of smoke and mirrors, really. We don't really have the power. We don't have the jurisdiction. Until we're independent, we won't have the jurisdiction To, to change the law. You have to be able to change the law to take these regulatory powers off the ports and then develop a national port plan that, uh, that it fits the economy and the nation of Scotland, uh, and we have, uh, we, we, we have, we have a, a crying need for modern port facilities uh, to serve Scotland uh, th- th- that we don't have at the moment. So I think that's the, the question, is, is independence is really needed to, 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 to ensure that the jurisdiction of the ports returns to, to Scotland, <laughs> as it were, rather than to the offshore private equity groups, whoever might own them. And our ports are traded as asset plays by private equity groups. So, uh, fourth ports were owned by the stock market. Then they were went to private. They went. They became owned by a Cayman Island fund. Now they're owned by the the, the Canadian pension fund uh, registered wherever. Uh, Clydeport is owned by Peel Ports, which is part owned by Deutsche Bank, which has registered offices in the Channel Islands. Uh, Dundee is lumped in with uh, the, the fourth. So essentially. We have no control. These ports can be sold on to any Tom, Dick, or Harry, or, or Russian oligarch, or, <laughs> or anybody. Uh, anybody with enough cash can come along and buy a Scottish port, or indeed a Scottish airport, because the airports, mind, are in the same ball game uh, as our, our, our energy companies, largely. So all our utilities are traded on by private equity groups. Ports are really just one part of that. So Scotland is really just an asset play for international money. Uh, uh, which, is, which is facilitated by Westminster laws, of which Holyrood can do nothing. Question about the Recife Ferry. I was interested in what appeared to go wrong there and whether you thought yeah. it could or should be reinstated. Well, as it happens, I did a, a couple of university projects on this funded by the European Commission back in the, back in the day, back in the 90s. And in fact, the research on this goes back to the 80s. Uh, in fact, when I was a shipping agent in Leith in the 70s, we were wanting to get a direct ferry service to the continent, uh, but various problems appeared. Uh, in this, The Superfast project was interesting because it, it developed through basically my proposal to Scottish Enterprise was to run a tender. Previous to, to 1990, well, in the 1990s, the Scottish Government the Scottish office at the time before devolution, uh, their, their argument was that uh, Scotland's best prospect for connections to Europe was to improve the roads to Hull. And this was the, the view of civil servants in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the Port of Hull loved this because then they, they could market North Sea ferries from Hull as the, gateway to the, the gate, Scotland's gateway to the continent, and they did that uh, very effectively. Uh, but uh, I managed to convince Scottish Enterprise to run with a tender uh, and this, a tender was uh, for a European ferry service was quite common, was starting to become more common on the continent, for, especially in the Mediterranean, where Mediterranean countries were, if they wanted a ferry service between Italy and Spain, they'd just run a tender uh, and select one and maybe get a, a little bit startup funds to do it. So we ran a tender and we uh, selected uh, super fast ferries. I was part of the selection panel, uh, fortunately, and, and we selected super fast ferries and they provided a world-class, uh, a world-class sol- solution. Two 100 million euro ships uh, in 2002 started the route May 17th, uh, and uh, it was a, a, amongst great fanfare. But it wasn't, a, a, it wasn't contracted uh, under what the European Commission advocates uh, under their motorways of the sea policy. Governments can actually contract these motorways of the sea like you contract a motorway on the road. And by by giving an eight or a 10-year contract to a provider of the capacity, the ferries in this case, the motorway on the sea, uh, as it were, uh, we could have contracted that. We should have done so, and that was my suggestion, but they didn't do that. They just uh, let uh, Superfast run the service. The problem with uh, Superfast's operation, however, was mainly related to the port of Recife. And that related to the fact that there wasn't uh, sufficient storage facilities at Resythe for freight and for trade cars. Uh, and Superfast wanted to handle, wanted to carry a lot more trade, a lot more freight, a lot more trade cars, but they didn't have the space at Resythe. They weren't given enough space at Resythe to do that. It has quite narrow aprons. The second factor was that the port, the private port owner kept on increasing the port charges. Uh, So every year, the port charges went up and up and up, and eventually Superfast decided enough enough was enough. And that's when they put some of their vessels on other routes elsewhere. Uh, One was between uh, Finland and Germany, Sweden and Germany, and the other they sold to the French state line to run on the channel route. Uh, So the the problems were really mainly to do with the port and the fact that Scottish government, uh, government didn't introduce a contract on that route as they could have done under the EU motorways of the sea policy, which I have to say I helped draft uh, with, with my Spanish colleagues and other colleagues, uh, some of whom did a, actually a PhD on the subject with me. But the, the motorways of the sea policy is there, was there, is still there for member states and neighboring countries to align together and to tender ferry services between, uh, international ferry services between member states and neighboring countries. Uh, and to provide them with support, financial support, uh, which could be uh, several million euros a year. Road transport is, for freight anyway, is provided free in the sense that the roads are free, whereas the motorway to the sea has to be provided by the ship owner. So there's not, not a level playing field in that sense. And rail uh, it, uh, as well is, is heavily subsidised for the infrastructure. So sea transport is not subsidised, but it is allowable under the motorways of the sea policy. So. That's what what should have happened. The Scottish Government, however, has has refused to provide any financial support for this, uh, and we're stuck with Rysythe. I should mention that the Kirkensee development, which I've supported for a long time, having first studied it back in the 1990s for Scottish power as as a cruise and ferry port, the Kakenzie port would have been much prepared by Superfast and would have been done, I think, had... uh, had this, the power station not been given a reprieve because the power station at Kenzie was due to close before 2000 uh, under EU law, but was given a reprieve for another decade or so. So this, that's the only reason the Superfast Ferry Service or the, the Recife Terminal was developed for ferries. The Recife Terminal is problematic also because it's, 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 it's much further upriver and it is a, a subject to shallower uh, channel depth. And uh, the bridge clearance is quite low, so that's why big cruise ships can't use Rosyth. <laughs> it's too far up, and it's too—it's under a low bridge, or three low bridges. <laughs> so if you you have a bridge clearance here of about 42, 43 metres, and some cruise ships and even ferries going well over 50 metres, so it can't go under the bridge. It's not ideal, uh, and the extra steaming t- trip up river was not. Uh, helpful to Superfast in terms of profitability. But essentially, Superfast did make a profit after the four or five years of operations. They were making a profit. They were carrying uh, a large number of people, cars and freight. But the problem was the, the port infrastructure was limited, the port charges were too high, and the government didn't put in place a proper motorways of the sea contract.
1: I remember being totally flabbergasted with, with with the whole Ferguson thing. I mean, <laughs> we've got a coastline the length of China, we've got about 90 inhabited islands, and we don't seem to be able to have a successful civilian shipbuilding industry. Why didn't the Scottish government just risk flinging the money at Ferguson's, even though their track record was bad? I mean, it's all we have and everything. Why didn't Why do you think they didn't do something to... to when we needed ferries...
2: I have to say I've done quite a lot of research on the ferry sector and uh, globally, internationally, and worked with quite a lot of naval architects. Uh, naval arch- and my studies are mostly to do with ship economics. So I can, I can look at this from, from what are the best ships, what are the good ships that are being built, and what are the really bad ships? Uh, and we get then to the standpoint that uh, Calmax ships are into the really bad ship category. The, the origin of that is within the company itself, uh, within, and also influenced by the preference of the trade union, the RMT. Uh, now, they specify a certain ship that nobody in the right mind in the shipping industry would ever specify. It's, it comes out extremely high cost, extremely inefficient, extremely heavy, uh, extremely costly, and takes forever to build, as we can see. So that's the first point, is we, we're actually designing the worst ships uh, and specifying and procuring And ministers, of course, don't have a clue about ship specifications. They're reliant on the civil servants and the ship agencies, Seamal and CalMAC, to come up with the design. And they come up with the the worst design possible, which I've heard described previously by someone involved as as a compromise, uh, a series of uh, uh, compromises for multiple stakeholders. (laughs) But essentially, if you look around the world, as as I've done in, in the best ship design options coming up, Uh, Then I I can give you one example here in, in, well, where where I'm actually in Orkney. uh, We have uh, Pentland Ferries, who has twice now bought uh, a low-cost catamaran, medium speed steel catamaran from Asia. Uh, And these vessels uh, operate extremely effectively, and they cost about 25% of a CalMac ship. So uh, what I've suggested successively and over repeatedly to ministers and committees over the last 20 years and more, And even in studies done for the Scottish government paid for by them, is they need to think slightly differently here and specify vessels that are are exactly what islands need rather than what stakeholders tell them they need. Uh, So we we have this bizarre situation where we're actually building uh, ships. I've compared it to uh, the the case where we could actually go to a showroom and buy a a nice Ford Fiesta. That's one of millions of Ford Fiestas, or we could go and design a completely new car <laughs> and go to somebody and say, build this completely new car. Untested, unproven, uh, <laughs> and extremely heavy, extremely <laughs> extremely costly. And that's essentially what, what we're doing. We're designing a new car every time Carmack want a new ship. And they don't need to do that. They, should, they can just go to an established naval architect that's built, say, standard uh, vehicle ferries under 100 meters long, and get them off the shelf. And even buy them from Asia if they want to. The The thing is, one of the best designers of, of ferries is actually a Scotsman globally. He's best, one of the best designers. He's based in Brisbane, Stuart Valentine. And he's built probably about 100 ferries. He's building 30 at the moment for the Philippines. Just these, like these catamaran we have in Orkney that runs on the Pentland Firth, one of the worst sea routes in Scotland uh, all, all year round. And uh, these can be built, as I say, for about, uh, one-quarter of the price of a Kalmak ship uh, and they operate very efficiently. And the people on Arran, the people on Mull, I've been helping them in the last couple of years try to determine a better ferry service because they're struggling now with what, they, what, they're, what the ships they have are collapsing uh, technologically and, and age-wise. Uh, they're just no longer uh, suitable at all, and uh, not, not providing a decent service. So they, these island groups are actually pleading with ministers, to buy these uh, better, low-cost vessels that are being churned out of Chinese and uh, Filipino and uh, and also Indonesian shipyards, and the there has been the offer made to build these under licence in, uh, in at Ferguson's, but that's been declined by Scottish ministers, and Scottish ministers instead uh, and civil servants have put in place people at Ferguson's that have no expertise in ferry construction, no expertise really in. Uh, in shipbuilding in that sense. The previous turnaround director at uh, Ferguson's had no shipyard experience, no ferry experience. The current uh, chief executive, I think, has come from a yacht building background, no ferry experience. So it doesn't augur well. I don't uh, see anything changing. It's just very bad managerial decision-making, extremely bad uh, decisions on ship design by by Scottish uh, government agencies. Uh, which ministers you can say ministers are responsible for, but they just rubber stamp these decisions that are made by civil servants and officials. So they, I think what's really lacking is is some managerial expertise from shipping, from real real expertise. Well, all I can do is as a student of global shipping for, for half a century, almost. <laughs> uh, I started very young, <laughs> uh, is, 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 is highlight what uh, other places do. And, and the, the, the cemetery of shipyards is absolutely full of companies that got it wrong. Uh, there's only a few companies get it right. And it's, it's very important we look at these companies who got it right. And the fact is, uh, I say, we have one of the best ship designers in the world as a Scotsman, Scots-Australian. And we've just ignored him continually. Uh, yet he's his vessels are, are world beating and his design is just uh, disregarded by the likes of CalMac and, and others. So I think it's 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 managerially, it's it's just I don't know what the weakness is. The 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 union drives the specification to some extent, CalMac then make the specification, that goes to the ship supplier, Thimal, the Scottish Government then fund it. Uh, And and therefore, you have this mechanism, but within that is tremendous wastage uh, uh, in in overall money terms. And it doesn't deliver a solution because the the current fleet is aging. And also, we have uh, in Scotland, well, we we actually need more than about 100 ferries, I've estimated. A lot of the ferry services we have are underprovided. Where you have one or two vessels, you could easily have three or four. And we have best practice examples, like Western ferries at Guruk-Danoon. Four ferries, low-cost ferries operate really effectively. Pentland ferries on the Pentland Firth. So we have private sector examples showing the government the error of their way on procurement, ship operations, strategies, managerial issues. Uh, But uh, the the state can sometimes get things very wrong. And in this case, they've got it very, very wrong.
0: I just want to know historically, Alf, who actually sold off the ports, and when was it done?
2: I don't know if anybody remembers a chap called Malcolm Rifkind, <laughs> but well, he happened to be transport minister at the time of uh, the privatisation of uh, Fourth Clyde and Tate. And the bringing in of the Ports Act in 1991. So yeah, I think if you were to to put it at somebody's door, it might be him, <laughs> as well as anyone else. Mrs Thatcher sold a, a few ports beforehand that under negotiated sales. The British Rail SeaLink ports system was broken up. I don't know if you remember, British Rail SeaLink uh, was the ferry company running from all the packet ports that connected by rail: Stranraer, Dover, Fishguard, Holyhead, Harwich these places. So all these ports were given away to Mrs. Thatcher's best friend at the time, a man called James Sherwood, who owned sea containers, <laughs> and was a big backer of the Tory party, apparently, <laughs> back in the day. But uh, yeah, so that was it. So they, they sold off all the ports. Uh, another big ports group, which was sold differently, was uh, called Associated British Ports, AB Ports. And they own Southampton, the ports, all the ports on the Humber, most of the ports in South Wales, and also ports such as Trunan Air. So AB ports were also sold off. And they are now also similarly owned by an offshore private equity group. So basically, all the British ports industry, like all other industries, or most other industries, including water in England, were sold off. But the problem was they were sold off without any plan to modernize ports. They were just given away, and the regulatory powers were given with them. So it, it allowed these private equity groups to simply dominate the UK port system to a large extent. Uh, and that's what I think led to certain uh, crashes that we had, uh, economic <laughs> uh, problems, with a tremendous uh, uh, change in the balance of trade over the last 30 years. With uh, UK is not a competitive economy anymore. For certainly for export, uh, exports kind of collapsed, as, and the UK was mainly a, a, a place for import of trade. And when we had a shortage of port capacity back around 2008, six, eight, we had a shortage of port capacity in the UK, and this was just before the financial crash, a lot of logistics companies in, in the UK were migrating to the continent. Because uh, the ports there were providing more capacity, so we actually lost a lot of economic activity because of this, port, this, this unusual port policy of just giving the entire port sector to the to the offshore banks, as it were. Uh, uh, and yeah, pri- Malcolm Rifkin was uh, was the guy responsible.
1: I keep hearing the statement that um, that ports in Scotland after independence wouldn't be economically viable because it's basically, if you're an exporter, it's cheaper to put your stuff on a lorry, send it down to the south of England and go across a, for a much shorter uh, sea voyage than, say, going from South or, or Kikensy, whatever we, we, we might end up. So is, is, is that true?
2: The argument uh, historically has been that uh, it, it's perhaps cheaper or faster to send a, a trailer load of uh, goods down to Dover and to, to go across that way. But I think over the last 20 years, that argument has, has completely reversed, largely because c- road congestion in England is, is getting worse and worse. <laughs> and also, the cost of road transport is very, very high. The other thing that we have is a shortage of long-distance road drivers, truck drivers. So <clears throat> these things are, are difficult to overcome. Uh, the, actual, the other aspect here is road capacity is, is not easy to increase. So if you have road congestion, it's not easy to, to increase the capacity, uh, whereas on the ship shipping side, it's just a case of adding another ship. Yeah, so the other thing about the Superfast service, of course, is they introduced quite a fast connection of 16-hour trip time, which was competitive against most, uh, most trucking options, especially when you get to truck um, uh, driver rest periods and so on. You have to include the driver rest periods in that. But... Essentially, uh, the economies of scale are important here. And I go back to the very first point in the the talk I just gave was on technology. And the technology in shipping is advancing all the time. Uh, So we have now much, much bigger ferries that have lower unit costs, lower. So they have greater economies of scale. They can actually transport goods at very low cost. And and they're they're beginning to get increasingly uh, better on the environmental emissions aspects and might very well soon be close to zero emissions. With using uh, things like methanol and so on, biofuels. So, and the other, they're using increasingly ferries are using battery power for navigation in and out of ports, so they don't pollute the local community as much as they might have done. So, there's various mechanisms can be employed uh, to do that. Uh, The but the yeah the economies of scale argument I think is the best one for ferries. The you can get now ferries that can carry two, three hundred trucks in one go. Uh, and that's, that's, that's much more efficient than, than previously. And it works very effectively around the world. Europe uh, has a whole, hundreds of long-distance overnight ferry routes. And we just need to look at Ireland. Uh, they have a, a couple of dozen yes. ferry connections. And, and their, their minister for shipping is constantly opening up a new Irish ferry port in Dunkirk or Rosslare or Rotterdam or Zeebrugge. The Irish do this in a big way, and they, 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 they're keen to, to, to put their international credentials onto the continent. Scotland isn't allowed to do that within the UK Union. We're not permitted to, to, to do that in a sense. And the civil servants in Edinburgh, uh, as, as, as far as I can see, have no appetite whatsoever to develop uh, improved connections, direct connections for Scotland to the continent, which they see as competing against ports in England essentially. Uh, so we're stuck at the end of England's supply chain, and that has, has added cost. That's where, that's where our problem is. And, and uh, I think that's largely why our trade, our trade is very oriented towards England, whereas Ireland with independence has gradually and now completely transformed its trade towards the continent. Uh, so m- most of Ireland's trade is with the continent now rather than with England whereas 80% of our trade is with England. (laughs) So uh, the problem is that that's also a two-way process. A lot of, we're actually buying a lot more goods from England than we're selling back in return, if you look at the logistics spend. Uh, Whereas a lot of that goods, these goods, we could be buying or sourcing directly from the continent if we had direct connections, which might come at better, more affordable prices as well. So our supply chain is kind of controlled through through pretty much the London mechanism, government and supply chain control, and that's where where Scotland is kind of stuck at the moment. In terms of the long term, uh, we, we probably shouldn't really depend too much on long distance trucking if we can help it, uh, because. The problem is that England's ports are also getting congested, as well as the road system.
1: Well, I assume it's kind of like smaller ferries that would use that could be hydrogen powered or, or you mentioned methanol. But th- but does that apply to the really big shipping uh, shipping that's used? And is that going to be sustainable? You know, this thing more worldwide going forward.
2: Yeah, well, even the biggest container ships now in the world are being built for methanol. You've probably heard of Stenoline run by a guy called Sten Olson. I, I met him some years ago, even... 10 years ago in Estonia, and he was talking about methanol then. And he was preparing a a facility in the Caribbean to supply his fleet with methanol. So uh, I think that these solutions are already here and now, uh, and we should be using them. Uh, We could be using them. Norway, of course, is, is, as usual, very advanced in all these aspects. And we've been been with other ferry groups in Scotland. We've been following developments in Norway for uh, battery connections. And also, they've got hydrogen ferries operating now as well. So we should be doing all that. But we—we our management, our systems, our our governance, if you like, is not quite up to speed. Uh, Our governance is... uh, I mean, I've compared it in the past to colonial type of administration, which uh, apparently is always mediocre. You always end up with a mediocre uh, <laughs> meritocracy in a colonial relationship. And that's where we are uh, at the moment. If you look at our economy, our, everything about us is is in that aspect pretty close. Uh, our, our systems, our, our economy is largely underdeveloped. Uh, in, in if I, I look at us globally, compared to other. Uh, if you look at former colonies, for example, that have liberated and, and developed, there's so many around the world from Dubai, Singapore, Malta, <laughs> you know, various African countries, Indo- Asian countries. The first thing they do is develop their seaports. Uh, even Estonia, the first thing it did on independence from Russia, from Russian imperialism, was to develop the, uh, the Estonian national shipping line and develop uh, Tallinn Port. And now Talent port handles, well, I don't know, maybe 30, 40, 40 ferry arrivals a day. And it's got two massive new cruise terminals. Once a country is liberated, it, can, it has to develop its infrastructure. It has to develop its trade. It has to, it has to reassert its presence in the global system. And, and I, I, I once heard the, the ports being described as uh, by the, the mayor of Hamburg, uh, former mayor of Hamburg, Henning Voscherer as, as, as the, the, the mouse through which continents speak to each other. This is what, what we're lacking. When, when I started in shipping, we had the, I was the agent for Iceland steamship company, Netherlands steamship company, Hamburg, uh, Finlines, uh, various other companies. Uh, so we had these cu- ships coming into Leith in the early 70s, uh, uh, and, and we, we had these cultural connections with these peoples as well. We were the consulates. We were we were dealing with passengers as well as uh, trade and goods. Uh, we were we were selling everything back to these countries. So Scotland had very good, uh, quite a diverse export situation at the time. Uh, all that was lost as we lost our our ports, uh, advanced port nature. We lost our connections. Our companies were taken over by London-based companies, including our shipping companies. Our ports. I mean, the fourth is basically owned by the Port of London, Tilbury, (laughs) Uh, the the Clyde is owned by the Port of Liverpool, (laughs) all offshore owned. So these are basically just uh, deteriorating assets. Uh, And these companies won't invest in new ports for Scotland, uh, because that's not in their strategic interest. So they'll let these ports simply wither away and become property uh, property plays and that's what happened. But the problem is we, our economy declines with this. Our economy loses its competitiveness and we lose these cultural connections, these international cultural connections that ports have historically always had. And the ports are what make the cities at the end of the day as well. Mm. Without the ports our cities of Dundee Edinburgh and uh, Glasgow would, would be much, much less than they are today. <laughs> but we need to reinvent our, our focus on seaports and connectivity, uh, intra-European and globally, if we, if we want to play our part in the international, in the, in, 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 in the world. Uh, it's a bit like Winnie Ewing saying, stop the world, we want to get on. But we, we, need, our, we need our port infrastructure to play that game. Uh, And we could actually play quite a quite an important role, but it requires uh, liberation from from the current uh, mentality that we have.
1: I found that entirely fascinating, and I've learned so much that I'm really depressed now. (laughs) You know, I am absolutely depressed and angry, but but
0: you know, it frustrated.
3: You had uh, spoken before about the proposal for Scapa Flow to be a kind of terminal and what I regarded as a kind of uh, resurrection of the puffer system of bringing goods back round the coast of Scotland from Scapa Flow. Uh, And then there was in the paper uh, the Aberdeen port expansion. The government are going to fund that or put money towards it. Is that in the right place? And also how do free ports fit into all this now?
2: On Scapa Flow, I, I was I, I, My PhD was in container shipping, and I used to run a container feeder service out of the fourth to to the continent back in the day. Uh, so I knew I knew a fair bit about container shipping, and uh, I did a, a PhD with Sea uh, Land at the time, who were the biggest container line in the world, and they were the inventor of container shipping, Malcolm McLean. So, <clears throat> so the the study of uh, transshipment terminals was was part of that. Uh, and it was quite clear that transshipment terminals around the world were developing outside cities. Uh, uh, and it was preferably as far away from cities as you can get, uh, because city congestion was a serious problem for big ships and, and also for draft of ships and so on. So what was clear that offshore transshipment terminals were developing, and they were uh, usually on former naval bases, uh, whether it's Malta, Singapore, Hong Kong, of course, uh, Dubai, Aden, Panama as well, Suez, where the canals intersect. So you were developing, you were seeing development, quite a quite a lot of uh, offshore transshipment hubs developing, Freeport Bahamas and so on, and a few other Caribbean islands, where they, they didn't serve the local market. They were just an intersection between ships. Uh, going from A to B and, and C and so on, and the key thing was in this literature that came out. The theory on transshipment was a bit like aviation as well. Is that uh, it was dependent on what was called intermediacy. Uh, if a port was uh, in, an, in a strategic location on an intermediate uh, sense uh, between regions, between major regions, then it could be used as a tran- It could potentially be used as a transshipment hub. Uh, and the, Increasingly, it was former naval bases that had natural deep water, and naval bases, of course, are always positioned at strategic locations like Malta and uh, Gibraltar and so on. And that's where they are. Uh, Scapa Flow came into that because uh, Scapa Flow is, is on the Pentland Firth, it's at the entrance to the North Sea, between the North Sea and the Atlantic, it's, uh, it's the second route into the North Sea as opposed to the English Channel, which, as many of you will understand, is extremely congested with shipping. Uh, there are quite a number of container ships routed via the Pentland Firth uh, going transatlantic to, the, to Canada, to the U.S. East Coast, the Gulf Coast, South America, Caribbean, and through Panama, so to the U.S. West Coast, uh, U.S. West Coast to South America, and also through to Australasia and Asia via as a, of what they call a westabout routing through Panama. So ships can go this way and do go this way. And the idea for Scapa Flow was then to assess that. And uh, I was working within the Orkney Council Harbors Department for several years with, with the director of harbors on various port projects. And one of them was a, a container terminal. And we we then marketed that internationally. And we we did the studies on the engineering and found that the former naval base at Line S on Hoy could be developed into a container hub, a small-scale container hub, less than 800 meters of key, at quite low cost, Uh, and if we could find an operator for that, then then that that would give it the go-ahead. So the Council were very keen on it, we developed all the plans, did all the engineering studies, the Director of Harbours were quite content that this could all be done. Bear in mind that Scapa Flow handles the biggest ships in the world. Oil tankers do ship-to-ship transfer here, And we have the oil tanker terminal in Flotta, there's offshore moorings, handling the biggest uh, ships in the world without a problem. And there's a tug fleet here, pilotage fleet, all this can be done relatively quickly. And uh, so we we found an operator that wanted to develop it with us, which is actually the developer of the Malta Freeport, uh, which is a big container hub in Malta, uh, uh, handling millions of containers a year. And he wanted to develop this here, and he was willing to take the concession, a 30-year concession, if we could build the terminal. And uh, the council here, with funding it has, plus Highlands Enterprise, plus Scottish government, plus European funding, could all be put in place to do this. Uh, We then recruited, uh, or we were about to recruit a container terminal manager when the government decided to pull it uh, for some unknown reason, which I'm still unsure about, uh, because we had done a lot of work over several years to get uh, to to that stage. And what they decided to do instead was to give the port location to the Wave Energy Company uh, or the energy research company, Emec, which uh, they gave it over to the Palamis Wave Machine. This was a decision I think ultimately made by Fergus Ewing at the time, so they gave the, the terminal over to Palamis Wave Machine. Instead of recruiting a container terminal manager, they recruited uh, a renewable energy manager. <laughs> so the whole emphasis quickly changed. This was about 2009-10. So that, that, was, that was what happened with Scapa Flow is the, the, the Scottish government decided against it. Uh, even although there was a willing tenant, even although the Port Authority was willing to go ahead, And even though there was market uh, interest in developing it as a container hub. Uh, So that was a really unfortunate uh, situation. I don't know if you know, but Palamis Wave Machine had about 50 odd million of public money put into it and eventually went bust. And uh, the council bought the thing for a pound. (laughs) So so it was a complete failure of alternative. And we kind of lost the container port project out of that. But the container port project is still there for if it was marketed uh, properly again. And I'm quite sure it would uh, be attractive. Bear in mind that all the ports on the continent are full now. Uh, The ship's queuing up. There's lack of capacity. There's lack of capacity even in the UK. and the other thing about Scapa Flow as a container hub, it's not just about the zero deviation time for the mainline ships passing through Pentland Firth going into Scapa Flow. There's hardly any deviation time. Also, your average feeder distance from Scapa Flow is less than from Southern North Sea basin ports. So if your feeder markets are, for example, Dublin, Greenock, Liverpool, Oslo, the Baltic, Scandinavia, uh, Iceland, Faroe, and so on. And bear in mind that Icelandic container ships are passing through here every day, north and southbound, providing a, an existing network available. Then the whole system could be up and running quite quickly, uh, and that was not a problem. Uh, so your average feeder distance would lose less as well. Overall, we estimated at the time that the container lines would be saving over $100 a container uh, going via Scapa Flow. So doing the transshipment via SCAPA flow would save them over a hundred bucks a box, uh, which if you're handling a million containers a year, is a hundred million dollars. <laughs> so that's a big potential saving. It's also a saving environmentally because your, your deviation time for the mainline ship and your, your average sailing times and distances for the feeder system is less than currently at the moment. So you're, you have a, a much bigger saving on fuel emissions and CO2 that as well. And that's what interested the European Commission in this project, in that it would provide a, a transshipment hub, a northern transshipment hub, for northern European markets and the Baltic Scandinavia, northern, northern Atlantic markets as well, uh, and also a future for possible trans-arctic uh, routing. Uh, interested the Russians and, and Norwegians as well. So there was a lot of international interest in this project. And that's why quite a lot of the international pro- projects I was involved in included uh, this, this Scapa Flow as part of their analysis. And they were expecting that to happen. Uh, but the Scottish government failed to deliver it for, for some uh, unknown reason. The second thing about Aberdeen is, Aberdeen is, is, is a 300 million pound Newport project on a, on a, a greenfield site, uh, a, a bay south of Aberdeen at Nick Bay. And uh, it's not uh, suitable as a gateway for Scotland, as it were, because it's really only designed for offshore uh, offshore vessels, largely. Uh, it's not even designed for the biggest cruise ships, although they wanted it to be able to handle cruise ships, but it's, because it's poorly designed, uh, it's, it's, it's unable to handle even the biggest cruise ships. It's quite a constrained harbour. It will probably have a role now for uh, the offshore wind developments, but it can't be used as a, an international gateway for Scotland, largely because it's so distant from the central belt where most, of us, most people live, and uh, it's also further away from the continent than the fourth. Uh, so it's not really suitable for that. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's probably been pushed. Uh, it's probably been developed largely through political, local political strength <laughs> uh, in Aberdeenshire, mm-hmm. has given it that political impetus. But it, it's also a trust port. And uh, in the, in the trust ports, as I mentioned at the beginning of my talk today, are, have similar problems to offshore equity funds in that they quite often end up operating in trustees' interests rather than public interest. And trust ports are, are also another uh, English kind of management system uh, that isn't, doesn't quite suit, uh, I would say, our needs uh, and lends itself to various practices that might not be helpful. So we have a port there that's probably badly designed, overly expensive, uh, and uh, not necessarily going to give us that much in the way of benefit. On the issue of free ports, uh, the the point I've made about this is that free ports are historically connected to most uh, bigger port developments uh, are free ports. And it's very much linked to new port developments. So what we've not done in Scotland is we're not linking free ports to the creation of new port infrastructure. For example, I would would have uh, advocated uh, and have advocated that if we were developing Mackenzie as a European gateway port for Scotland for ferries and cruise ships and so on, that might also be potential for a a free port, uh, which would be designed to develop trade for the port, largely, not as a place where local companies can jump in and get tax-free benefits. It has to be, usually free ports internationally are connected with growing trade for the port. Scapa Flow is another one that might lend itself to freeport activity. We had a lot of interest in uh, in Orkney as a a kind of North Atlantic center for seafood processing and and distribution. Bear in mind that all the seafood is caught in the North Atlantic uh, between Iceland, Faroe, Russia, Norway, uh, Shetland, uh, and Orkney, and Scotland as a whole, uh, and could easily be uh, the, 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 the actual, Function of a container hub is is part of its function, or one third of its function is is, remove, is, is moving empty containers around from trades of areas of uh, supply and demand, uh, and particularly important here would be refrigerated containers for goods like seafood processing and, and transport, and that kind of thing could be very important. Also, uh, forest products and uh, and food and food and drink in general, but there's see, uh, free ports are really. I would say linked to more so a development of new port infrastructure, new advanced port infrastructure, particularly container terminals uh, uh, and particularly offshore hubs, if you like, Uh, whereas what uh, the Scottish government plan to do is is simply make the fourth probably a green freeport and uh, one other, probably I would say the Cromarty first, and they will link into the to the wind, uh, the wind energy leases that have been given out by the Crown Estate very cheaply, as we know. Uh, and, and I, th- I suspect that, that that will simply enhance the profits of these energy companies who are already going to make excessive uh, abnormal profits out of the Scotland's wind energy leases they've been given. Uh, and in addition to the ports, in the case of Forth and probably Cromarty. If they're too selected as the green free ports, they, they will then uh, get cash sums to help modify some piers to help uh, uh, use uh, to help access for the for the offshore uh, vessels that will be required for these facilities. So I, I don't think the the green ports strategy in Scotland has been well thought out. It's it's a it's a, it's a kind of oddball situation. It's been renamed green free ports which I assume is going to be linked to the the lucrative uh, offshore leases (laughs) that have been given out by the Scottish Government, Crown Estate, to the offshore energy companies, (laughs) the international energy companies that will uh, further exploit Scotland's resources. So uh, it's not much to write home about. Whereas freeports in general are not about, they're about widening the competitiveness of a, a country's economy in the sense of developing new port infrastructure that facilitates a wider uh, growth of trade in general across a whole range of commodities, and that's probably what we needed to think about if we thought if we were thinking green ports was the way to go. But I think fundamentally our problem is we don't have modern port infrastructure to begin with. We're sitting with obsolete port infrastructure, and we're sitting with regulatory mechanisms that are designed to exploit Scotland rather t- rather than to develop it.
3: Thank you for that, Alf. And we'll close it there. Um, It's a really fascinating subject and you've talked extensively on it and frightened the living daylights out of us. Thank you very much again. Thank you.
0: I was fascinated and raging, absolutely raging. And just the um, vulnerable position we put ourselves in is
1: is horrifying. Exactly, and if someone said, you know, take a guess, who do you think runs the, the port authorities? You, you know, you might say, oh, the government. You might say, oh, it'll be London. You might even say, is it the local authorities where the ports are? But I, I wouldn't ever have thought of saying, oh, it's run by hedge funds.
0: Yeah, offshore offshore hedge vehicles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Anyway, right. it is really, really. It's a really cracking discussion
0: so there we are i hope you found that as fascinating as we did and perhaps as motivating as we did to fight even harder for independence so we can sort this mess out and we'll catch you again next month
1: yeah bye for now
0: thanks for listening to the Moby's Eye show brought to you by scottish independence podcasts thanks to pensioners for indy for sharing their event with us The theme music is called Inspired and it's by Kevin MacLeod. And if you'd like to hear more of this kind of programming, then please subscribe to our podcast channel or check us out on our webpage, which is podcasts.independencelive.net. And if you're part of a Yes group or other indie supporting organisation and you're having an event which you think would work well on this show, please get in touch with us. You can email us IndyLivePodcasters at gmail.com or get us on Twitter at ScottishIndyPod.